Well, again, good morning, guys. And for those who are sick and listening online, uh, we miss you this morning and prayed for you. Just got more texts as I was joining back there on my phone about people who are sick uh, and not able to make it today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open to that passage that our friend Ben just read, Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. We're going to jump back into Malachi. Before we do that, I wanted to give a little uh, recap and update on our trip uh, because God was very gracious to us and just his generosity was shown to us in, in a powerful way. Uh, we went, Steph and I went down to Louisiana this past week where um, I preached at the church that we served at for three years called Crossroads. Rob asked me to preach on Sunday and just give an update and kind of cast a vision to their church about what we were doing up here and uh, in an effort to, to get the whole church aware and also maybe call others again to a mission trip this summer that haven't come uh, come out and seen what God is doing at the Mountain Church. And Rob had been telling me that for the past couple months, um, they had been collecting a love offering. A love offering is, is something that you give like above and beyond, and they were going to give that to our church uh, in, for the Christmas season. And Crossroads Church is a smaller church in a rural town in Louisiana. It's a, in a town called Vinton, which is probably no more than 3,000 people. And the town is, the, the church is in the country outside of the town. Uh, so real country people and simple people. And uh, when Rob said a love offering, you know, I was expecting, okay, you know, I know these people are generous. They're going to give us everything, everything that they can give. And um, Rob got up and they get a final count and he went to present me the check. And before he did it, he, he opened the envelope and started crying uh, because Crossroads had given $10,600. Uh, throughout the week, Rob had been telling me that there were church members who did not give Christmas gifts so that they could give to the Mountain Church. Uh, one of our youth students, you, some of you guys may have met him, uh, Caleb Connor, and I know he wouldn't want me to say this, but I'm sure he's not going to listen to this sermon. Um, <laughs> he set aside half of his whole paycheck in December to give to us. Um, so I say that to you just to let you know that um, people believe in us, uh, people sacrificially have given to us. Uh, they believe in what God is doing at the Mountain Church, uh, and they want to be a part of it. They want to partner with us, and they want to help support in any way they can um, in our efforts to start a church in Des Moines. So, um, yeah, I, I was blown away by that. I, I really couldn't say anything when Rob gave me the check. I was, I'm sure the people thought I was ungrateful because I was honestly just speechless. But um, on top of that, I met with a pastor just across the river in Texas in a town called Orange, First Baptist Church of Orange, who um, wanted to meet with me and met in his office. We talked, and he gave me a check for $2,000. So coming back with almost $13,000 from this trip, um, was not expecting that, but God is gracious, and uh, we just thank him for, for providing for us and, and doing that I was joking with him that that'll give us enough money for me to start the foundation of my helipad. Um, <laughs> isn't that amazing, though, uh, that people believe in what we're doing and, and sacrificially give? I mean, it's, it's honestly humbling and it inspires me as we push into 2018 to, man, let's, we're doing this. Uh, I'm excited to be back. I'm excited about what God has for us in the new year. And to jump off the new year, we're continuing our study through Malachi. 
So this morning we're jumping into where we left off a couple weeks ago. And if you didn't hear those sermons or you forgot about what we've been talking about, uh, I thought I'd give a brief recap of what we've been going through. So the book of Malachi opens in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, with God reaffirming his love for his people. The people are questioning God's love for them. They say, how have you loved us? And God reaffirms his love by showing his sovereign, unconditional election and showing the promise of what he will do through them. Verses 6 through 14, God rebukes his people for offering polluted sacrifices and offerings to God. They were not giving God their best. They were giving God their leftovers. They're, they're lame, they're blind, they're sick animals. And the people had grown really hard-hearted and cold in this. They didn't even see it as being wrong and offensive to God. We talked in verses 6 through 14 about how as God's chosen people, they were to live as his representative among the nations. They were to live lives of holiness and live lives that showed who he really was and how they lived. Showed that how God is the supreme being that he is and they were to magnify him, show God as who he really is. And they were not doing this. They were despising him. They were polluting God. They were not paying honor to the great king that he is. But we saw even in the midst of this, God promises that one day he will gather a people from all nations who will bring offerings to him. Chapters 2, 1 through 9, God turns a little more specifically to rebuking the priests, the men who were called to lead the people to honor and fear God, the people who were to lead the people to, to stand in awe of God's name. And instead of offering true instruction, instead of turning the people from sin, the priests were in, in fact leading people to sin. They were not offering true instruction. They were not guarding knowledge. And God promises that he was going to discipline them. He was going to remove them from Service And that leads us to the passage this morning that we're looking at where God kind of gets a little more wide in his focus. Again, he focuses on the people. And starting off there in verse 10, it says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? This is what is unique about the Christian faith is that the God of Christianity is not only creator, but he is Father. He is not only all-powerful, but he is personal. He wants relationship. And when he talks about our father, some have argued here that this might mean Abraham. It more likely means God, God as father. This is, I think, what Malachi has in mind. But interestingly enough, in, in verse 10 there, Malachi, he says, is not there one God who is creator and father? But then he asked the question, why are we faithless to one another? When I first read that, I thought that was interesting. How, what, is Malachi, what is the relationship there between is there not one God and one Father and faithless to one another? Why does Malachi ask that question? What is the correlation there? I think part of my problem in reading the text is that I have, a, I have an individu individualistic Western mind. I think about Christianity, God saving me, all about me, Life revolves around me. But in the Bible, it's clear that God has chosen not a people, or excuse me, he has chosen a people, not a person, but a people. There is a shared life to which God calls his people to. God is a shared savior, a shared Lord. And when he saved his people, he entered into a covenant with them, all of them, with, and they were to be in unity. 
This covenant consisted of a relationship with certain obligations that were sealed with a type of oath. In this covenant, specifically the one God made with his people, the one Malachi is referring to here as the covenant of our fathers, this was a covenant that was given to Abraham, a promise that through Abraham would be a nation, a nation of blessing to which God would bless to be a blessing. God is faithful to his covenant throughout the Old Testament in Genesis and in Exodus and gives his people certain responsibilities, specifically like on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, he gives the 10 commandments as this is how you to live as my people. These are the obligations, the responsibilities that you are to have as my people and you are to be unified in this. You're to be unified in your goal to reflect my character and holiness in your life. I think what Malachi is doing here and showing this correlation is that since God has brought his people together and entered into covenant relationship with them, it should overflow in faithfulness to him and to one another. They should have a unity amongst themselves that reflects the unity of the creator that they serve and that has entered into covenant with them. This is why later in the New Testament, Paul has such strong words against people who cause division, people who slander, people who gossip. This is why Paul refers to the church in the New Testament as one body, the body of Christ. The question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is what do we believe about God? Do we believe that he is one, that he is creator and father? And how does that belief spill over into our life? How does that spill over into our affections? Because what I believe is that someone who has a proper understanding of the character of God, of the implications of salvation, will not only respond with a love for God, but with a deep love for those who believe in the gospel. Does that make sense? 1 John 1 says, 1 John 5, 1 says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. I wish I could explain that clear, but I don't think I can say it any better. There is a direct correlation between experiencing the love of God and showing the love of God to fellow brothers and sisters. Have you ever met someone who says, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church? That can't happen. John doesn't say whoever loves the Father can love whoever has been born of him or should. I'm sure like, we might wish that that's, that little phrase was in there. It gives us an option. 1 John 5 one says, whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if, if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, what kind of emotions, affections do you have for your church, for your brothers and sisters? Are you indifferent? Are you selective in your love? How does your love overflow in actions? Do you long to see your brothers and sisters? Do you think about, pray over your spiritual family often? Do you have a desire to grow in relationship? As gospel communities, do we long to spend time together? Do we rearrange our schedule to see each other? Do we serve one another sacrificially? Do we share resources with one another? 
Are we there for one another in the time of need? Are we open and honest about our fears and struggles and failures? This is why at the Mountain Church we describe ourselves as a gospel-centered family. We believe that when the gospel is believed and lived out, when we live in response to the gospel, it will radically transform the way that we relate to one another. We will love one another as family. It will create a committed, joyful family who loves to be together, who loves to serve together, who loves to eat together, who loves to laugh together, cry together, who just loves to be together. Do we have that kind of love for one another? Do we strive to fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Are we on guard against gossip and slander and division? Moving on in verse 11, Malachi records specifically how the people have profaned the covenant, how they have been faithless to God and to one another. It says there in verse 11, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the of a man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The people of Israel had married the daughter of a foreign god. Now this can mean that they adopted pagan practices. But more specifically, I think it means that they literally married foreigners who were not God-fearers. They were idol worshipers. They were not part of the, Christ- of the Jewish faith. They were part of a pagan religion. And in so doing, they had profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, this word sanctuary can mean, interestingly enough, a reference to the people of God themselves. So in so doing, they are defiling themselves. They are profaning the sanctuary themselves, and they are committing abomination. This is a word that is used to describe evil religious practices of idol worship. It it can refer to sexual immorality. It can refer to the offensive and Loathsome practice of the Canaanites that would include uh, child sacrifice, perverse sexual acts. In the time of Malachi, the Jewish men were divorcing their wives to marry men, or <laughs> marry women who are outside of the Jewish faith. And if you know your Old Testament, you know historically that the prophets are adamant against this. Marrying women who are outside of the Jewish faith, who are idol worshipers, leads to idol worship within the Jewish people. It leads to rampant idolatry. This whole idea of not marrying someone outside of your faith is continued in the New Testament. Paul says, don't be yoked with unbelievers. We see the strong language that Malachi uses in verse 12. He says, may the Lord cut off. Like, get them out of our camp. Let's get rid of them. We're not messing around with this. See God's heart here for the unity of marriage and for the purity of marriage. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something that Christians should compromise on, that God's people should compromise on because they value prestige or sex or uh, money more than God's word. If you're here this morning and you are single, do not compromise on the most important thing. Do not even consider marrying someone who does not share your beliefs. Malachi continues in verse 13 and saying, and the second thing you do, 
that isn't bad enough. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So the people of God experienced the withholding of God's blessing. They had experienced what their sin was doing, the consequences of their sin. They felt that. So what they would do is they would weep and moan and they would cry and they would show these great displays of grieving. They would cover the altar in tears and Malachi has an expression saying that there was a lot of crying going on. It expresses the amount of lament that was happening, but the problem what Malachi is addressing is they were not tears of genuine repentance. It was another empty thing that the people of God were doing. More lip service that people were playing, praying to God, their hearts were not in it. It was more along the lines of the pagan practice of this weeping and wailing and groaning, but yet not doing anything about it. The people were crying for wrong reasons. They were crying over a lack of favor instead of crying over their sins. Have you ever had this happen in your life? Feel like God has abandoned you. He's not pouring out blessings upon you. And you turn first to bemoaning God instead of looking at what, what kind of sin is in my life. This is not true repentance that the people are showing. True repentance is not just saying sorry. True repentance is not just being sorry for the consequence of your sin. True repentance is being sorry for the sin itself and wanting to turn from it. This is the difference, I think, between people who simply profess Christianity and people who live a transformed life in their Christian faith. Friends, we cannot miss be misled or mislead others with this kind of watered-down gospel, this watered-down truth that says you can come into a relationship with God, but you don't have to change your life at all. You can come into a relationship with God, you can say sorry for your sin, but you don't ever have to change from your sin. That is not the Christian faith, and that is not what God is looking for, and the people of God in Malachi were so ignorant or blind to it or hard-hearted that they couldn't even see it because they asked the question in verse 14, why does God not accept our worship? Why does he not accept us with favor? Why does he not? Like I says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. God is watching you. He is witness. You have been faithless. Although this wife of your youth was your companion and your wife by covenant, you are divorced her. You have left her. The Bible is very clear that marriage is a, a lifelong union. Marriage is a a covenant. It's not a contract that can be broken. It's a covenant and an agreement between a man and a woman and between God. And what the Hebrew men were doing here is they were divorcing their wives, most likely to gain prestige or power economically. They might have been divorcing their wives because their wives were old. They no longer found them pleasing. They might have been divorcing because they wanted to pursue politically advantaged relationships with the pagan rulers, people who are in power. This is what I think is getting at here. The wife of your youth suggests that they were, they were divorcing their aging wives for younger women. Sound like a problem in America? <laughs> Malachi says, did he not make them one with a portion of their spirit? This is a reference, I think, specifically to Genesis 2, 24 
where God says when he created marriage, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Spiritually one, physically one. There's a lot of different debate or speculation of what that means with a portion of the spirit in their union. If you have a study Bible or you have an ESV Bible, you see there's different footnotes there that, that say what, what it says in the Hebrew are different translations that are like variations of what it might say there. I think the whole point of being joined together with a portion of the spirit in their union is that God is the one who joins a man and a woman together. God is the one who creates and unifies and makes a man and a woman one flesh. Malachi also records that God intended for marriage to produce godly offspring. It says there, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And if the Hebrew men were divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying pagan, idolatrous women, how were they to raise godly offspring? Their house would be divided. Is not reflecting the, this was not lead to children being taught and trained in righteousness from godly parents. Malachi says, so guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, the joy of this verse is that it has been described as one of the most difficult verses in the Old Testament to translate. Again, you see, and if you have an ESV Bible, if you have a study Bible, there's a lot of footnotes in this verse. Different translations say different things. The ESV Bible says it this way, but if you're familiar with the King James Version or if you've grown up in church or you have a New American Standard Bible, it will say this way. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. You see there, that makes the, the verse mean a little different things, doesn't it? This God kind of, his hatred in the ESV, in the one translation, is against the man who commits divorce. But in the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, in that translation, it, the hatred is more specifically at divorce. Now, as I was studying this and reading different commentaries and looking at all the different debates, and these are kind of the two main uh, translations. I don't know if I would say I feel confident in one over the other. I think the ESV makes a little more sense to me. It's a little more clear to me because in the other King James Version, the New American Standard is saying that God hates divorce and hates him who covers his garment with violence. Does that mean that there's kind of a separate thing that God hates? Like he hates divorce and he hates the one who covers his garment with violence. If so, what does that mean? Or is it kind of God hates divorce because it covers your garment with violence. Either way, I think we can say from Scripture and from the character of God that God does not like divorce. But also, God does not like people who commit divorce in that sense. The men in Malachi's time were committing horrible sins that would not go unnoticed and addressed, and they were violating God's design, God's creation for covenantal union. Now that phrase covers your garment with violent. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Um, Entering into marriage and obtaining a wife is sometimes portrayed as covering with a garment in Ruth 3.9 and Ezekiel 16.8. Abusing and divorcing a wife metaphorically stains a person's garment, making him unfit to enter God's presence. It's another way of saying 
uh, defiling your character. You're being covering with shame. Divorce should not be a characteristic of God's people. Divorcing your spouse because you lost affection for them, feelings of love, is not ground for divorce. Now again, do you think that these words from Malachi are timely for today? How many people do you know, maybe even Christians, who got a divorce because they lost feelings for their spouse? Or their wife got old, and they were no longer pleasing to them, and they, well, I'm going to dump this one and get a new one. Isn't that kind of our American way of thinking? The Bible is clear. Marriage is an exclusive covenant relation between one man and one woman in which the couple becomes one flesh, unified physically, emotionally, spiritually, that is a lifelong union that ends in death. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I don't, the, the point of this passage, the point of this sermon is not to get into what are, well, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? When is divorce okay in the life of a Christian? The point is that in this instance, what the people of God were doing was wrong. It was destroying relationships, the faith, damaging the godly offspring of children. It was making for an uncertain future. And God was making the people, he was letting them know that I'm a witness to this. I'm watching you do this. And he offers a challenge, a a teaching, a, a warning almost. Guard yourself in the spirit. Do not be faithless. One of the things I think we see in this passage and throughout the book of Malachi and even, I mean, throughout our Bibles is that our God is faithful even when his people are faithless. And in the midst of this passage where God's people had been faithless to him, they, had, they were profaning the covenant, they were turning their back on him, this passage looks forward to Jesus, right? And that's what we're trying to do in every passage of preach Christ from all of scripture. So in every passage that we preach to, we should be getting to Jesus at some point. And this is the point where we get to Jesus. The people are faithless, they have been turning their back on God, God is still faithful to his people. God is so faithful to his people that hundreds of years later, he sends his son Jesus to redeem and reconcile his people. He came to reconcile the great divorce, the great spiritual divorce in which all of humanity has been separated from God by sin. All throughout the Old Testament, God uses marriage as an illustration to describe the relationship to his people. And the people are not described well. They're described as a, a loose wife, an adulterous wife, a straying wife that God is continually pursuing, calling back, loving. You want to read a crazy book, a crazy prophet, read the prophet Hosea. What a great illustration of the gospel. And although God's people left God, were faithless to him, God could have divorced his people. He pursued them. He sent his son. Although God's people deserved to be less of themselves, they deserved eternal separation, God sent his only son to redeem his adulterous bride. 
God brought her back to himself and he sent his son to pay the penalty for the sin that we deserve, for the people's unfaithfulness. He did it at a huge cost to himself to bring us back to himself. And he offers this marriage, you could say, with God, this union, this right fellowship with God to anyone who would turn from themselves and trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ. God promises to those who believe in it that there will be a, a, a big wedding one day. Revelation talks about a, a final wedding feast in which his bride, the church, will be reunited with God perfectly. The, the wedding marriage ceremony will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, you have a question, you want to be a part of this marriage, you want to be a part of this wedding, you want right relationship with God, I would love to talk with you after our gathering. But if you're here this morning and you are a believer, and you're thinking, okay, this was a good passage on marriage, shows us the gospel, what's the point? If you're a single person, this is a passage on marriage, what implications does this have on my life? If you're here this morning and you haven't married a pagan woman, you haven't covered your garment with violence. What kind of application can you take from this? Right? There's a temptation for us when we read a passage like this that might not be specifically applica applicatory. The right word? Applicable. Sorry. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> Applicable to our life that we think, okay, haven't married a pagan woman? Check. Haven't covered my garment with violence? Check. I'm good. Thanks, Daniel. That was probably for someone else. That might have been for the person who's listening online who married a pagan woman. <laughs> what are the implications of this verse? And I want to specifically talk about uh, what Malachi says twice there at the end. I think it's important for us. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. And I have some applications, implications uh, that are for singles and married and married with kids. And I'm going to start kind of more general and get more specific to those who are married and those who are married with kids. Number one, what's the application we can take from this? How do we guard ourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless? Number one, this will be a shocker for you who have listened to my preaching a while, is seek to know God in his word. Again, there goes Daniel talking about how we need to read the Bible. How can we be faithful to God if we don't know what he asks of us? So number one reason that we, number one way that we can be faithless is not knowing what we're to be faithful to. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we think, well, I don't know, ignorance is bliss or ignorance is always better or because I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not doing it, that's not wrong. That, that's sin, that's omission. How can you fight the spiritual batters without the word of truth, without your sword? How can you strengthen your faith and hold fast to his promises over believing the lies of the world, the lies of the flesh, the lies that we tend to believe and are so prone to wander in? Number one, that's how we can be on guard. Get into the word, get the word into, your, get the word into you. Number two, continually examine your heart by looking at your actions. Surround yourself with people who will speak truth into your life in love. 
There's a great book written by a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt called Gospel Fluency. I think it's in Gospel Fluency where he talks about fruit to root. This is a great exercise. If you haven't heard of this as a new idea for you, I'd really recommend reading that book. But he talks about how we need to examine our fruit, our actions, to, re- to show to us, to reveal what are we believing, what's in our heart. In other words, if I don't like to serve, I like to be served. I like to sit on my couch all day and watch football or whatever it is. I like Stephanie to wait and dote on me. What am I believing? Do you have people in your life that examine your actions and will speak to your heart? Do you have people that are asking you, what are you believing in? What is captivating your thoughts? What are you believing about God and how is this spilling over into your actions? At the Mountain Church, we want to make the gospel functional. We want Jesus to be functional. We don't want Christianity. We don't want the gospel to be kind of this add-on thing. We don't want the gospel to be, well, you just kind of believe in that first, but then I don't really know what you do next. We want Jesus to be central. We want the gospel to be central in our life. Therefore, we want to bring everything in line to what Jesus says in his word. We want everything to be in line with what God's word says. And we can be just as faithless as the Israelites when we start worshiping other gods who we look to to be our functional saviors. The things that we look to to find joy and put our identity in and purpose in. Number three. For those who are single, for married with kids, be faithful to yourself and to other married couples around you. Guard your purity. Do not watch, read, listen to music, movies, videos that will compromise your purity or your holiness. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Just think about that. There shouldn't be even like a whiff. A hint. Something I was convicted about earlier this, or I guess last year now, making a vow that I will not watch anything with nudity. I know what happens in my mind when I see a woman that is naked that is not my wife. I don't even want to think about that. I don't even want to go there. Now, that meant I had to purge a lot of my DVDs that I had. That meant a lot of shows that are on mainstream television, I'm not going to watch. You might now have been thinking, wow, that would mean a lot of television shows and, and movies that I wouldn't see. And I would just ask the question, why would you want to see that? Maybe you're... Anyways... Guard the purity and sanctity of marriage. Guard your eyes, guard your heart. If Jesus tells us that if there is something that causes us to sin, we should gouge our eyes out, how much more would he say, be careful what you watch? Singles, married, make sure you have appropriate relationships with married people of the opposite sex. It is not wise to spend time with someone alone 
who is of the opposite sex that is not a family member or a spouse. Those of you who are married, guard the purity of your relationship. I don't know about you guys, but I really have to work at my marriage. When I first got married, I thought marriage was just kind of this happily ever after, sail off into the sunset, easy going. I mean, what all the movies portray it as, right? Wrong. First year of marriage was awful. And I realized how much work it is. It takes intentional tending, fighting, striving to be unified, doesn't it? Where is your marriage at this morning? How are you at one flesh? Would you characterize your relationship that way? Are you open and honest with your thoughts and your emotions? Do you seek to hide things from one another? I would encourage you to ask someone in your gospel community, another single or a couple, to ask them, what do you see in my marriage? What blind spots do we have? Do you have intentional times of sitting down and talking about how things are going? Are you unified spiritually? Do you pray together? Do you read and share what you're reading together? Do you pray for one another? Are you seeking to be a blessing to one another? Are we so kind of ingrained in our daily rhythms and in our responsibility that, well, I get my responsibilities done, she gets hers done, and things kind of function as good as they can be, and I'm just going to kind of leave it as that? I would encourage you, if you're not doing this, to pray together in the morning or at night. I would encourage you to start reading scripture together or read separately and recap what you're learning with your spouse. Marrieds, couples, how are you doing physically? Are you physically one? How are you striving for physical intimacy? How is your sex life? Is sex to you kind of a special thing that just occasionally happens? Or do you have a committed, active sex life? I believe that in Christian marriages, there should be the best sex. Because with a right understanding of the gospel, sex is a beautiful thing that you get to give of yourself to one another. Sex is a great gift to be enjoyed selflessly. Sex leads to intimate, marital intimacy. But a committed, active sex life also protects against faithlessness, against sexual temptations, against thoughts, behaviors, and sinful actions that might happen outside of marriage. Married couples with kids. Verse, the, the verse that I've probably been thinking about most the past couple of days is when Malachi says, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Is this our goal if we have kids? What do we want for our kids? I got thinking this week, why did I even want to have kids? Is that just because, well, that's what married people do. Peter was just joking this morning about uh, we have kids to live vicariously through them. 
to get them involved in the things that we were never good at. And we say that jokingly, but that happens. I mean, you see it. You see people that bring kids into this world because they want someone to love. They want someone who's going to love them. Please, just get a dog, you know? (laughs) People have kids to complete a void that they feel. What is your view on kids? Are they distractions? Are they little people who ruin your schedule, give you less sleep, always need you? Is your focus with your kids to train them in godliness? Is your desire to train them in righteousness? Do you spend time with your kids? Do you try to raise your kids in this way? Or is it, well, I'm just going to give them what they want so that they can be happy and they won't bother me. As a Christian, training your kids in godliness is not an optional task. It's the primary task, responsibility for you. It's not an add-on assignment. It's the assignment that God has given you. We have to ask ourselves the question, do your kids see the difference that the gospel is making in your life? Do your kids see you satisfied and joyful in God? Will and Nathan and I were just talking yesterday about people that we know, people that we grew up with, who have just abandoned the faith. Just walked away from the church, walked away from Christianity. I wanted to say a disclaimer here because I know that there are parents who can do everything perfectly. They could be the best parents and their kids might still walk away. I mean, look at God, right? I want to talk about a perfect father and his kids still rebelled against him. But as Will and Nathan and I were talking, as we were thinking about these families, the instances we were talking about was instances in which the faith of the family was an add-on. The faith of the parents was not central. God was not central in their life. Christianity for them was a thing that they did on Sunday morning, maybe a Wednesday night, but there were no other conversations about God. There was no uh, examinations of how God should affect everything in our life. Missions was not a part of their life at all. Jesus was mentioned, mentioned on a Sunday morning. He maybe was mentioned in prayers before dinner, but he was not the focal point, the goal. And I want to learn from that. Will and Nate, we, want to, we want to learn from that, right? We don't want our kids to grow up thinking that Christianity is like, and Jesus is like this little optional thing that you can do on the side. And parents, we will not raise godly offspring if Christianity is not central in our life, if the gospel is not central, if Jesus is not central, if they're not seeing the difference that Jesus is making in our lives. If they don't see a struggle and rely upon the grace of God, if they don't see a sacrifice for the sake of the cross, if they don't see us trying to get the gospel out to as many people as possible, They will wonder, just as my friends and people that I'm sure you know as well, what is the point? Why do my parents have a lame hobby? My parents literally aren't any different than my friends' parents who don't go to church, so what's the point? I 
I want Addison to grow up getting a taste of Jesus by the way that I live, by the way Stephanie lives, so that she can't even think about tasting anything else. I want her to see me feasting upon Jesus, that she wants him. Do we want this for our kids? Do we want this for the kids in the mountain church? I want her to know that there is nothing more satisfying than following Jesus because of the way she sees me being satisfied in Christ. I want Addison to go over to Will's house, to Nathan's house, to Peter's house, anyone's in the church house, and see the same thing. I want Addison to experience family devotions in other people's houses. I want her to see people fight and make up and, and show the difference that the gospel makes. I want her to see families living in response to the gospel. And do we want this for the kids of the mountain church? If you're here this morning and your kids are grown or you've never had kids, do you want this for the kids of the mountain church? You have a part in this as well. Singles, empty nesters, would you come alongside families with children in the church, in the home to help do this? To be an example? I ask that we would pray this year along those lines. That our children would take this church to a deeper level. There are many people in this church who do not come from a legacy of faith, and I want us to start that legacy. Do you guys want that? I, just want, I want Gabby and Addison and all the kids up here singing one day as we're old and complaining about how loud the music is. <laughs> I want them to be the best missionaries in the school in their neighborhoods. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your goodness that you show us every day. That although we are faithless, you are faithful. Although we make mistakes, you have grace that covers. But Father, I ask that we would not be sleepy or calloused or lethargical this year. That this would be a year in which we grow in faithfulness. We grow in knowing your word. We grow in a spiritual maturity. If we are married, we grow closer to our spouse and and closer to God, if we have kids, that we lead them closer to Christ. Father, I ask for everyone at the church that we would grow closer to you so that people might see what we are doing and how your grace is working in our life and want more. Father, I want to baptize people this year. I want people to come to know you this year. I want lives to be transformed this year based on your gospel and for your glory. Father, I pray specifically for our kids right now. Father, would they be excited to gather with your church on Sunday morning? Would they be excited when mom or dad sits down and opens up the Bible and teaches them about your word? Would they have a heart for you over a heart for anything else? Would they be more, uh, would they desire you above Disney or TV shows or Nickelodeon or toys or sports or whatever it is, Father? Would you? 
Show yourself to them as who you really are, as the all-surpassing supreme object who is worth giving up everything for. Father, would you help those who do not have kids come alongside families with kids to help and shepherd and encourage and speak truth? Would you unite us together as a loving, supporting family? And Father, may you make us a fruitful family with many kids who grow up knowing and trusting in you, who love you, who can take this church and the legacy that we leave to a, a deeper level, can continue the legacy of faith that you have bestowed upon us. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.